had 20 years of baptisms, over thousands of baptisms, annulled because he didn't do it the right way, at least the way he was supposed to do it by the Catholic Church's definition of baptism. And uh, apparently what he did was he exchanged, he used we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, rather than I baptize you in the name of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so all the baptisms for 20 years were annulled because he got the we in exchange for the I. And the reason is because they believe that, that you're representing Christ as you say that. And so they said, according to the church, that it was annulled. And uh, so I don't want to go into all the details about why I disagree with the way they do baptism. But the reason I bring this up is because of authority. Who gives them the right to annul, annul those baptisms? Who gives someone the right to do baptisms? What gives someone authority? That's the question. Jesus, in this passage, is telling us why he has authority. Jesus is telling us what gives him authority is that he is equally God. And you cannot go any higher than that, can you? You can't go any higher than claiming to be equally God. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. That's incredible authority. It's as high as it gets. But what is good for us is that Jesus doesn't merely claim to have authority. He also explains why he has authority, what it means to have authority, what it means as the Son of God that he has authority. He helps us understand what it means that he is equally God. And we see this especially brought out in verses 18 through 23. And we're going to continue to bring this out today all the way to verse 30. And I want you to, to remind you that Jesus has healed this crippled man, right? And he did it on the Sabbath. And so he was accused by the religious leaders, by the Jewish religious leaders, of breaking the Sabbath. Now, he had broken their rules, right, that they had made up in order to try to keep the Sabbath, but he didn't break God's rules. And so last week, we looked at his response, his defense to the accusation that he had broken the Sabbath. And if you remember his defense to the accusation that he had broken the Sabbath is that I and my father are working. Well, that's an interesting response, isn't it? In other words, I have the same rights as the father who has been working throughout every Sabbath. <laughs> In other words, I am equal to the father. I am equally God, just as the father is God. I have the same rights as my father. And he has continued to explain what it means that he, he is equal with God from verses 18 through 23. So why is this important? If you are to hear scriptures with any benefit, if we are to read the words of God, if we are to hear the words of Christ, to be of any benefit to ourselves, there is perhaps nothing more important than knowing the authority of the one who is speaking. 
we must absolutely understand the authority of these words if it is to make any difference in our lives. We need to know the authority of the speaker and we are desperately in need to understand it and feel the weight of it if it is to affect us. Think about it. If you received a, a letter telling you to do something from a friend or a boss or a parent, you know, there are different levels of authority there. But if you received it from God telling you to do something, well, that's a whole different story, isn't it? That's a whole different level. It makes all the difference in the weightiness of the words. So what we're going to ask today is in light of the authority of Christ, how should you respond to the Son of God and His words? And this is a very important question, and this is exactly where Jesus is leading to. He's talking about His authority, and then He's leading to how should you respond? What is the right response to the authority of Christ? In verse 21, we're told that the Son of God has authority to give life to whom He wills. We looked at that last week. So if Jesus has authority to give life, then how should you respond to him? Right? In verses 24 through 27, we are told how you should respond to the Son of God in light of his authority to give life. We are looking at how should you respond to the Son of God in light of his authority to give life today. What is the right response? And so if Jesus has authority to give life, then you need to know what is required of you to have life. I mean, it's pretty basic and pretty simple, isn't it? If Jesus has authority to give life and he has made a way for you to have life and he has expressed to us how to have life, then you need to know how he has required for you to have life. I mean, that's a no-brainer. That absolutely makes sense. And verse 24 tells us, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And so I just want us to begin by noticing the words here, truly, truly. It's kind of like an exclamation mark, right? Saying, this is really important for you to hear. Listen up, tune in to what I'm saying. Just like an exclamation mark. <laughs> tune in, listen to what I'm going to say. Don't zone out at this point. <laughs> And so what Jesus gives as requirements here for how to have eternal life can only be understood in light of his authority. And in light of the authority that he claims to have in verses 16 through 23 that we've already looked at. And remember that he has said that I have life in myself and I give life in verse 22. And this is a prerogative to have life is a prerogative that belongs to God alone. All right? God is the one who inherently has life. Life flows from him. He is the source of life. He has an endless, endless, uh, sufficient supply of life. He isn't depleted of life when he gives life. And so the reason he has authority to speak on the issue of life is because he is God and he has life. This means he alone has the authority to give the requirements for eternal life. And I want you to understand that no one else has authority to tell you how to have eternal life. I don't care how many degrees they have. I don't care what they claim as far as their religious position in life. 
I don't care if they claim to be a pastor, right? They have absolutely no authority to tell you how to have life apart from the words of God himself. He alone has the authority to tell us how to have eternal life. So you need to listen to what he has to say. So what is eternal life, first of all? What are we talking about? We often use the word saved, which isn't bad, but Jesus uses the word here eternal life for a reason. And it has to do with duration of time, doesn't it? So when you think of eternal life, you think of endless duration. Life that goes on and on and on forever, without end. Endless life. But it also has to do with the quality of life. And it's important that we understand that quality of life is how we are to hear the words eternal life. It's life, it's real life. Not just the life we think of as being able to breathe, but it's life, meaning to have favor with God, to live under the favor of God, to have all of God's goodness directed towards you forever. And actually, these are the words that we come to at the end of this verse itself, that there is no condemnation, meaning you will not pass into judgment for eternity. Rather, you'll be fully under his favor. That is an incredible thought that sometimes we just need to stop and think about for a minute. The reality of what it means to have eternal life. This is the issue that Jesus is addressing here in light of his authority to give. Now we often think of life as merely a future reality, don't we? And it really is a future reality. The fullness of life that those who are in Christ Jesus will experience is truly going to be experienced only in a future reality. But Jesus here seems to be speaking of a life which is not merely future, but is also here today. It's a present reality. He is talking about having this eternal life right now at this moment. Not only coming, but it's here now. It's here now at this moment. You don't have to await to experience something of this eternal life. The resurrection life can be experienced today. So in some ways, we've already, believers, crossed from death to life, even if we've only tasted it in our experience. How then does the author of life say you can know whether you have eternal life? That is the question we need to understand in this verse here, is how then do we have eternal life? That's what we need to understand. Well, it says here, if you hear his voice, and believe in him who sent me. You have eternal life. And this is what Jesus says is required for any to have life eternal. So the question we ask, what does it mean to hear his voice and to believe in him who sent me? And, and the wording here is actually synonymous. To hear his voice and to believe in him who sent me is the same thing. <laughs> He's saying the same thing twice, basically. If you hear him, you believe him. It's not decimals or, or vibrations. I don't know, decimals. It's not vibrations in the ear that we're talking about here, right? That's not what it means to hear. Like something vibrating. Oh, I heard you, right? It's talking about a hearing of faith that obeys, right? That the fruit of that faith, the fruit of it, the reality of it, 
is, is a, a, a transformed life. And so it is a hearing in faith. And it's a believing in him who sent me. Are one and the same thing. So what then does it mean to hear and believe? So if it means to believe, to listen in a way that you believe him, it means to trust him. It means to, to have confidence in the words that he has spoken. It means to come under his word in saying that it is true. The fullness of his word is absolutely true. And you love it. You believe it. You confirm it. You agree in your very bottom of your being, in your heart, that yes, it is true. But notice the object of this believing that's required for you to have eternal life is the Father. Isn't that interesting? I would expect for him to say, whoever believes in me has eternal life. The words I speak about myself have eternal life. But here he says, the Father, the one who sent me, has eternal life. And I think there's a good reason why he says that here. You, you see, the whole section has been about his subordinate function to the Father. That he has come to bear witness to the Father, to do the will of his Father. That's the very reason why he came. And here's just another example of his subordinate position that he takes to the Father. And actually, the Father and the Son can be used interchangeably as the object of your faith that saves you. And it's used interchangeably throughout scriptures, isn't it? Jesus could have just as easily said, you must believe in me to be saved as you must believe in the Father who sent me. Neither would be wrong here. And this makes sense because Jesus is working to do what? Jesus is working to reveal the Father. Do you remember his words, he who has seen me has seen the Father? So when Jesus reveals the Father, when you're believing in the Father, you're believing in the Son. When you're believing in the Son, you're believing in the Father, right? He who does not honor me does not honor the Father. He who honors me honors the Father, right? You can't have one without the other. So who does this apply to? Who are the ones who, if they believe, will experience eternal life? Well, whoever meaning every single person who believes without exception and no one else without exception. And both of those need to be understood to fully comprehend the point that Jesus is making here. This means your eternal safety, your well-being depends on how you respond to his word. If you hear his voice and believe in him who sent me, you presently have eternal life. Eternal life is yours at the very moment and will be yours for eternity without end. This also means that no matter how much authority someone might claim to have, no one has the right to add any requirements for what is necessary to have eternal life. Riches, smarts, praise God that smarts are not required for you to have eternal life. <laughs> Privileges do not make you more qualified for eternal life. Praying a prayer itself does not make you any more qualified to have eternal life. Although crying out in prayer will often accompany <laughs> salvation. There's nowhere in the Bible that says a prayer itself. 
qualifies you for eternal life. Coming forward at an altar call does not qualify you for eternal life. Although we will want to confess Christ, coming forward at an altar call does not mean you're saved. Right? J.C. Ryle reminds us, we should mark carefully the strong language of Scripture in describing the immense difference between the position of a man who believes and the man who does not believe. It is nothing else than the difference between life and death. This is why the church must diligently be careful that we are preaching the gospel and that we are not putting in worldly substitutes or taking out parts of it. We must preach the whole counsel of God. We must preach the whole gospel without addition or subtraction if we're to be faithful to God and if we are to love the church. Paul said this, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And we also read from Paul that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You should not only come to him the way he prescribes, but you should also do it immediately, and you should do it now. Verse 25 can be looked at as an encouragement to come immediately to him by telling us that the resurrection is something we can experience at this very moment. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And once again, notice those words, truly, truly. Causing us to awaken <laughs> and listen and put our ears and in, in, in work to put our ears into what is being said. And it is hard work, isn't it? Sometimes. Jesus refers to a time when his voice will raise all the dead who has ever lived. Actually, we're going to look at that in a little while. He will speak of a voice when he will speak, and all who have ever lived will rise. But here, he is speaking of the voice that is now with us, that now speaks, right? And those who hear, and remember we just looked at what hear means, to believe in him. And so those who hear his voice will be resurrected to life. Even now, even with the coming of Christ, this is what he has brought at this very moment. So it's not just a future thing that we will look at, but it's also a present thing. It is now here that those who hear will live. And I want us to, to, to pay attention to the power of the voice of Jesus. Jesus' voice has the power to raise the dead. There is nothing that compares to the power of the voice of Jesus. And so when we hear the word of God, this is not just any words that we're hearing. When, when we read the Bible, when we read the words of God, we're not just reading any words. We're reading the very power that raises the dead. And we need to understand the implications of that. And the example here would be of Lazarus. Remember what happened to Lazarus? Jesus spoke and Lazarus came out. He said, come out, Lazarus. Come out. And what did Lazarus do? He couldn't stay in that tomb. It was impossible. <laughs> he came out of that tomb, right? Because the voice of Jesus gives life. He raises the dead. And we see this in the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37 as well. Great passage, the voice of God. 
And this is exactly what it means for Jesus to say that he is the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus says these incredible words um, that I need to stop and think about sometimes, the implications of them, what it means, because I just read over it sometimes. Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Incredibly powerful. More power than what we can even comprehend or understand. So you might ask, how can the spiritually dead hear, meaning believe in the message? And I want to remind us that this is the same way that the crippled man was able to be restored to health and start walking. (laughs) Because Jesus told him to get up and walk. Jesus not only commands with his voice, but also provides the power to do it, to obey his commands. Like the paralyzed man, apart from Christ, we cannot hear, believe, and have life. We're unable to heal ourselves. We're unable to give ourselves life When Jesus calls, he instantaneously creates life. Salvation is wholly the work of Christ. He transforms dead people into living people. We have a powerful Savior. And so you should live with confidence that Jesus really does have the authority to give you life. And the question is, why is that the case? How can we know that? Because the Father has granted him to have life in himself. Verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life. In himself. Here again are the qualities that belong to deity. Here are the qualities that belong to God, ascribed to Jesus himself. He has life in himself. The resources of life are inside of him. He is the self-existent one, the always living one, never depleting his life. Ever. Human beings, on the other hand, derive their life from God, don't they? We derive our life. We have our life because God gives it to us. Otherwise, we would not have life, and he can just as easily take it away from us as much as he can give it to us. And here it says that the Father has granted the Son to have life in himself. He's not merely a channel of life, but the very source of life. And he is the only one that can be said of him that he has life in himself. One way to understand what this means is to think of an illustration that St. Augustine used in contrasting God with a man who goes out at night with a candle. And this is what he said. When the candle goes out, he is left without light. But God needs no candle, for he himself is light. What a simple illustration, but what a powerful truth. God doesn't need a candle. (laughs) He is light himself. He is life himself. Philip Ryken explained it this way. Likewise, God does not receive life from some outside source, but he is self-existent as the source of all life. Jesus says that the Father has granted that the same should be true of him, an awesome claim of deity. Now, I just want to, for a brief moment, speak on when it says that he has granted him to have eternal life. Because we can stumble over that. I know we spent quite a bit of time last week talking about this, but I just want to briefly mention it. Because we can think, how could Jesus be be equally God if he is granted life from the Father? And what does it mean that he is granted life? Well, we have to remember that this means that he is 
he has an eternal granting of life from the Father. This is not saying that at the incarnation when Jesus was born, the Father began to grant him life, right? That's not what it's saying here. There was never a time when the Father has not granted the Son to have life throughout eternity, all right? Instead, for eternity, the Son, as the Son, has always been granted eternal life from the Father. And we must go back to the prologue where it says, In him was life before the incarnation, in chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life. It's inherently his. And the Father and the Son function in a subordinate uh, manner. The Son functions in a subordinate manner to the Father. And that's what it means to be the Son. It has nothing to do with more or less deity to say that he functions in that way he is equal with the father this means he has authority to give life to whomever he wills it is the eternal giving of life to the son that is the grounds for his authority to give life through his powerful life-giving word today in verse 22 we're told the son of god has been delegated authority to bring judgment We looked at that last week, right? If Jesus has authority to bring judgment, how should you respond to him? And in verse 20 through 30, we are told how you should respond to the Son of God in light of the fact that he has been delegated authority to bring final judgment. So now we're turning to verses 20 through 30 and understanding what does it mean for us that Jesus has the authority to bring final judgment? And how should we respond? And so you should respond with confidence that Jesus is the man for the job. That he is uniquely qualified to bring judgment. And why? The answer in verse 27 is because he is the son of man. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. There is something about the fact that he is the son of man that makes him perfectly qualified to bring judgment. There is something about the fact that he is the son of man that makes him the right man for the job. And what is that? And part of the reason is because he has partaken of flesh and blood. But he, being fully God, has partaken of flesh and blood. He has took on our weaknesses and our frailties. He has become vulnerable like us and walked with us. Paul seems to allude to this in Acts 17.31 when he spoke at Mars Hill, when he said, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He is also fit because he was slain for sin on the cross. This is why he's able to open the scroll for judgment, because he was the lamb who was slain according to Revelation 5, verse 2, and 5 through 6 and 9. You know, there was no one there to open the scroll, and then everyone turns to the Lamb. He is worthy to open the scroll. He who was slain. He is also fit because in taking on flesh and blood, he has revealed God to us. And I think John 3, verse 19 explains it very well, sufficiently. Notice the words at the very beginning, and this is the judgment This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So him coming into the world has brought judgment to the world by their response to him, right? 
And so there is something about the Son of Man that makes him uniquely fit to bring judgment. And all who ignore and reject, reject the Son bring judgment on themselves. So all of this makes him perfectly fit to judge. He is the man for the job. You should live also anticipating the day when Jesus will call for all the dead to rise and will receive either eternal life or eternal judgment according to their deeds, according to verses 28 through 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What does Jesus mean by saying, do not marvel at this? I think what he's saying here is that he has something to tell us that is marvelous, something incredible. And he's already said, I think it was in verse 20, uh, that he will show you even more marvelous things than this. And I think this is what he's referring to, this incredible day of judgment and the resurrecting of the dead that he's referring to here. This is something that is marvelous. So what is this marvelous thing? Well, there is coming a time where his voice will speak and all who have ever lived will rise from the dead. They'll be resurrected from the dead and he will stand and everyone will stand before him in judgment. How marvelous is this thought? Just think about it. The words for a time is coming are not qualified, qualified with the words um, now is as we saw in verse 25, indicating that this is talking merely about a future event that we're looking at at this time. A future final resurrection is in view. So who are those in the tombs who will rise? Who are we referring to here? And the answer is everyone who has ever lived. This will include who? <laughs> well, we could go on and on, right? This, could, this includes Hitler. This includes Mussolini. This includes all of those who have ever lived. Everyone will arise. In the Pharaoh, every Pharaoh who has ever lived will rise from the dead. He will say, Hitler, come forth. He will say, Mussolini, come forth. Pharaoh, come forth. And guess what? They will come forth. He will say, Isaac, come forth. And I will come forth. And they will, he will call your name, and you will come forth as well. And what you will you do when he calls with his powerful voice? Well, nothing other than what his command calls you to do. On this day, everyone who has ever lived will be raised up to stand before this judge. One example of this, again, is, is, uh, is Lazarus. In chapter 11, verse 38 through 44, when Jesus called him to come out, he came out, and he would die again, wouldn't he? But there is coming a day, a final judgment that awaits us. And what amazing reminder here once again we see the power of his word that he speaks and it happens and it comes to being jesus powerful words is all it takes to bring and raise from the dead those who are in their graves have you ever gone to the graveyard and tried to speak to someone to get out of the grave have you ever done that probably not right i hope not <laughs> ken hughes says this a burglar could stand at the edge of a graveyard and play revel, but nothing would happen. He could travel to the greatest of our national cemeteries where military men, noted for their obedience throughout life, lie buried. No matter how well or loudly he played, nothing would happen. 
Those dead men need a far greater authority to bring them to life. And that authority is the voice of Jesus Christ. Now, what might appear strange to us are the words that we will be judged according to our deeds. Doesn't that sound strange to you, those who have done evil? To judgment, eternal judgment, those who have done good to resurrection life, to eternal life? How are we to understand this? And what I want us to begin by understanding is this does not mean that your works are the basis of your salvation. They are not. (laughs) Absolutely not. No one will ever be accepted into heaven based on their works. The only thing our works could do is condemn us. The only thing our works could do. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Based on the finished work of Christ alone will anyone ever be justified and be allowed into the eternal life with Christ. And we just read that in chapter 5, verse 24, didn't we? We just read that just a few verses ago. So what does this mean? It means that we will be judged according to our works. Our works will be evidence, confirmation of the genuineness of our faith on that day. That they will bear witness, give evidence that we had the real deal. If you're justified, then your faith will produce good works. You will bear fruit. And these good works are defined by faith, aren't they? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. There are many out there today who look like they're doing good works, but their works are filthy in the eyes of God. He hates their works because they're not done in faith, right? When saved by faith, we will live in a manner that bears witness to our salvation. And we're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about some sort of evidence that bears witness to the reality of your faith. Where before it was impossible for you to do anything that pleases God, now, by faith, your works are pleasing to God. What an amazing thought just in itself. In John 15, verse 1 through, it explains how these good works are born. If you remain in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. It is Christ alone who bears these works. It is Christ alone in us through faith that bears these works. And nothing else can bring forth these good works. Jesus will look at your life on that day not for perfection, but evidence. Evidence that you're trusting and resting in him. We see this borne out throughout scriptures. Revelation 20, verse 11 through 13. I'll just read the second half here. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So there are only two possible outcomes, eternal life or eternal judgment. What is it? What is the outcome that you are headed towards? For all who believe their works will bear witness to the reality of their faith and they will receive eternal life. For all who did not believe, their works will be seen to be completely evil, every single one of them throughout their entire life and they will receive eternal torment. Jesus had quite a lot to say about eternal torment, didn't he? Jesus spoke more than anyone else perhaps in scripture about eternal torment. He says it is a fiery furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He also said their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
One man wrote this, Hell is the conscious experience of eternal bodily torment for all who are condemned by God. While our minds cannot bear to dwell on it, we must state the truth as declared by the Lord. But for believers, this is what Spurgeon wrote. Think about this. Death, what is it? It is the waiting room where we robe ourselves for immortality. Death death is the gate of life. I will not fear to die then. (laughs) So finally, you should live with confidence that Jesus will judge perfectly. You should have confidence that his judgment will be just and right because his judgment is perfectly aligned with the will of his Father. In verse 30, I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus, once again, points to the subordination of of himself to the Father as the basis for what makes his judgments valid. His judgments are based on what he hears from the Father. In other words, he acts in unison with the Father. And so the question is, what does this mean? Why is Jesus so intent in telling us this? This means that all of his judgments are good and right. It means all of his judgments are perfectly based on the righteousness of God. He always works to glorify God and therefore he does his will and therefore it is good and right judgments. He is not motivated foremost by your well-being but foremost by the glory of God. And we should all rejoice at this because this is the judge we want. This is a judge who is good. And this is a terrifying thing for those who are not right with God, isn't it? If we stand in our sins, we will glorify God by receiving eternal condemnation. God's justice demands it. And God will be honored by it. But on the other hand, there is nothing more comforting for those who are trusting in Christ Jesus than to know that we have a judge who is true and just. You see, your sins have already been punished on the cross. He has paid, it is finished. For you who are trusting Christ. God's justice demands that you go free and you must go free. And you will go free. You would have to be unjust to do otherwise. So it's not just grace but justice that grants us our heavenly inheritance. Because of what he's accomplished on the cross. So, so this should help us see him as the true judge who is worthy of your trust and confidence. I believe that one of the reasons why we are so, oftentimes so spiritually impoverished today, is in part because we seldom think of anything beyond the moment. We are so caught up in the moment that we seldom see beyond it. Nor do we contemplate the implications of the authority of the Son of God. That he has authority over life today and judgment in the future. We definitely, we, we desperately need to contemplate the reality of Hebrews 9, verse 27. That said is, says it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. We need to live every day in the reality of that. Your life will end, will not end when you die. It will not end when you die. Nor will it necessarily lead to something more pleasant, as oftentimes we assume. It depends on your standing with Jesus Christ, doesn't it? And whether you are trusting in him completely in the work he accomplished on the cross. 
Do you live in awareness of the great reality of the authority of the Son of God and the fact that you're going to give account to Him? Judgment is appointed for you. Are you aware of that? Ignoring this will do you no good. It should drive you to the answer. It should drive you to salvation in Christ Jesus. Here is your hope. And it's found in nowhere else. And that's where it should drive us. I conducted a funeral yesterday for a young girl. And her mother was understandably beside herself. And I am sure that for the most part, the family was desperate for me to say that she is in a better place. And maybe she is. But I cannot say whether she is or whether she isn't. No man has the authority to do that. No parent has the authority to do that for their children. There's only one who has authority to say that. And it's based on his revealed word to us. And he has not kept it a mystery, has he? He has made it very plain to us. And you are the only one who knows for sure whether you are coming to God his way or not. So I ask you, have you entered into the ark? Who is Christ Jesus? The floods are coming. The rain is coming, isn't it? And if you're not in the ark, if you're even standing outside of it, thinking that this would be a good place to go into, you're not going to be saved from the wrath of God. You must be in the ark if you're going to be saved from God's wrath. You can think of it as a bus. The bus is coming. It's going to bring you to a certain place. Standing right outside is not going to bring you to the right location. Are you in Christ Jesus today? Are you trusting in him completely for your salvation? And I do not understand a believer who would not rejoice today in the reminder of the authority of Christ Jesus. If you're a believer, rejoice. Praise God that he has authority over all things and nothing can in any way stand against his plan and his purposes. His promises are true. Not one promise will fall to the ground. Just as much as not one warning will ever fail to accomplish what he claims it will, so also will not one promise fall to the ground. Praise God for his authority. Therefore, you and I must take the promises and warnings of Scripture seriously. Take his word seriously. You can take everything out as a grain of salt, but the one thing, the one thing in life you and I must take seriously is his word. Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. And then for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. Let's pray. Lord, your voice is the voice that raises the dead. Your voice is the voice that gives life to that which was dead. Lord, we need to hear from you today. We need to hear your voice. Lord, we need you to give life. Lord, I thank you for reminding us of the power of your word. Thank you for reminding us of your faithfulness to your promises. Lord, that every one of your promises will be fulfilled. We thank you for that. Lord, we pray that you would keep your promises before our hearts and our minds. Keep your promises before our eyes this week, Lord. 
that we might live in the reality of who you are. I pray that you would keep the warnings before our minds as well. Give us sobriety, Lord, in light of the truth of who you are in the world that is quickly going to hell and to judgment. Lord, give us boldness, give us courage to speak in behalf of the one who has the right to speak. May we speak your words this week, both comfort to believers and warning to unbelievers. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are coming again. We look forward to your soon return. We look forward to experiencing the fullness of the life that you've promised to us. And so we say, come, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.